I think the tide is turning and I think we're starting to understand the disease to an extent where therapies, I think, will soon be on the horizon that will be better than what we have presently. Hey, everybody. Hope you are doing as well as can be expected in these times. And thank you for coming back for another episode of Connecting ALS. My name is Mike Stevenson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jeremy Holden. Jeremy, have you noticed the sun setting a little sooner each night now that we are a few weeks into August? I have, you know, creeping along through summer and I, you know, just in the in the evening, kind of getting dinner ready, noticing that that sun kind of peeking through the front windows a little bit more than would have seen a couple weeks ago. And, you know, the walk in the dogs in the evening, it's a little bit darker earlier. So definitely chugging right along through this summer of COVID. It's weird. Time seems to have slowed to a halt, but also continues to fly by and fall is just around the corner. There still is, though, some summer left to cling to. And we hope that all of you out there are finding safe ways to be outside and engage in some of those summertime activities that you really enjoy. This week on Connecting ALS, we're going to continue the research thread that we've been following of late, and we're featuring an interesting conversation that you had, Jeremy, with Dr. Elijah Stommel, a neurologist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, who has been mapping connections between algae and ALS. Yeah, it was a very interesting conversation, and look forward to having our listeners hear from Dr. Stommel, but, you know, the history of finding some of these algae blooms is this blue-green algae and noticing higher incidences of ALS relative to the population. I, I don't want to take away Dr. Stommel's thunder, but just really kind of looking into some of these environmental risk factors and trying to get to the bottom of the role that environmental causes or variables play, trying to understand ALS. Really fascinating conversation and can't wait again to hear from Dr. Stommel. ALS researchers are always in search of those environmental factors that may contribute to the disease. So let's listen in on your interview with Dr. Stommel now. We are joined today by Dr. Elijah Stommel, professor of neurology at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth University. Uh, Dr. Stommel, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. So you are, amongst many of the things that you do, uh, you are the principal scientist on a project that is looking into the extent to which exposure to a certain type of algae is a risk factor for the development of ALS. So from the outset, can you explain to our listeners what are cyanobacterial harmful algal bloom toxins? Where would I maybe encounter them? And, and how did you develop your hypothesis that there may be a connection to ALS? So cyanobacteria are a ubiquitous bacteria that is found throughout the world, largely found in water bodies, both freshwater and marine environments. They are an ancient, ancient bacteria that are responsible for producing the majority of the oxygen we consume. And was, they were involved in, in changing our climate early on in the development of the earth. And for some reason, they have developed the ability to produce any number of toxins, some of which are toxic to neurons, to brains, and they also produce ones that are toxic to liver, 
when they are concentrated generally in the hotter months of the year, they can form what are called blooms, which are large conglomerations of, of these cyanobacteria. There are many species, and they can even form mats over the surface of the water. They've been very prevalent in Florida the last several years, largely to do with the warm climate in Florida and the way that the water flows through the waterways in Florida. I don't have time to go into that in great detail, but they've had massive, massive blooms there in the hotter months of the year. And Lake Erie has a huge problem with cyanobacterial blooms. Nobody really knows whether having a bloom makes everything worse in terms of human health or whether there may not be some background level of cyanobacteria in the water, which is still neurotoxic even though you don't see it. And there are probably other sources of cyanobacteria, maybe air conditioning systems, as with Legionnaire's disease. It's found in soil, so maybe it gets there through agriculture, through spreading manure. And then when these farm fields dry out, it might be a source of cyanobacterial toxins. Aerosol may be important. So there is a energy-consuming process where things will evaporate from the water and get into the air, and wave action and wind action might accelerate that. But there's good evidence that cyanobacteria will get into your nasal passages and into your lungs, and it's found in the microbiome of the gut as well. So my first sort of experience with cyanobacteria came over a decade ago when I had some medical students who wanted a summer project. Some of these were undergraduates too, I believe. And so I had them map out all the ALS patients we had in our databanks here at Dartmouth, Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And lo and behold, we found a cluster of ALS patients only about 10 miles or less away on a lake just to the east of here. And I had no idea why there were so many cases around this relatively small lake. I didn't think it was by chance because it looked like there was about a 25 times higher rate of ALS when you considered the population there than there should be. And so I started thinking, you know, maybe it has something to do with the water there. As it turns out, this lake has had a long history of pollution. There used to be some industries around the lake. And in the old days, there were no septic systems. The pipes from people's septic systems went right into the lake. And there's a lot of lawns. There's a lot of asphalt around the lake. So there's, you know, the drainage of water goes right into the lake. And I was talking to a limnologist, a lake specialist over at UNH. His name is James Haney. And he told me that this lake had had a long history of cyanobacterial blooms. So I started looking at the literature a little bit, and I did remember, actually, that there was a, a connection between cyanobacteria and ALS in the island of Guam in the 1940s when the Americans took away Guam from the Japanese right at the end of the war. The American troops that went there we're seeing a very high rate of what looked like ALS there, and also a dementia type of illness and a Parkinson's-like illness. The rate of ALS 
in Guam at that time was about 200 times higher than the rest of the world. So it was pretty amazing. And a lot of epidemiologists went there to study it. And it was mulled over for decades. And in the early 2000s, a Dr. Paul Cox, who has his own institute out in Wyoming, started to look at the situation all over again. And it turns out that the Guamanian natives there, they were called chamaros, were uh, eating this cycad flower. A cycad is a type of plant that grows there or used to grow there. And the plant has seeds on it. And when they're ground up, they substitute for a flower. And the natives there knew that these seeds were kind of toxic. They would burn in the mouth and cause GI symptoms, make you feel pretty lousy unless you really soak the flower in water for a long time. And so this flower was looked at and um, a Dr. Peter Spencer, I can't remember exactly when it was, found that this flower contained a neurotoxin called BMAA. And turns out that this BMAA wasn't coming from the plant itself, but it was coming from cyanobacteria that lived in the roots of the plant. And they had a symbiotic relationship. Cyanobacteria bind a lot of nitrogen. So they were supplying the plants with nitrogen and had a place to live in the roots of the cycad plant. So the theory of BMAA was debunked early on because it looked like you had to eat your body weight every day to cause anything that looked like a neurodegenerative disease. But then it turned out with more analysis of the cycad flower that about 99% of it or more, 99.9% of it was being missed because it was protein bound. And so the calculations were done again and it seemed like you know you didn't need as quite as much nowhere near as much to cause potential disease. In 2015, Cox took this BMAA and fed it to some vervets in a facility down in St. Kitts, where they have a long history of studying that form of mammal. And he was able to reproduce the pathology of ALS and Alzheimer's disease in these monkeys, in these vervets, by feeding them for about six months. And they were took a look at the spinal cords in a later study and saw the same pathology of ALS there. So a very convincing story. And they were able to block the effects of the BMAA by feeding the vervets L-serine, which is an amino acid we all have, but also an amino acid that BMAA substitutes for when proteins are made. And when BMAA gets into proteins, it makes the proteins misfold and will kill cells. And protein misfolding is really one of the hallmarks of all neurodegenerative diseases, including ALS. So very interesting story. BMAA may have other modes of action. It binds to glutamate receptors and has some other modes of action as well. We actually have an L-serine clinical trial going on right now here at Dartmouth to see if we can slow down the progression of ALS by giving large doses of L-serine. So that's how we got into the story. And ever since then, we've been looking at sort of the geography of where people live in relationship to these blooms and, and other toxins and trying to see if we can understand the paradigm better. 
so you're looking at clusters, right? And trying to explain why there are different clusters where with a higher incidence and, and what are some of the environmental variables that might explain that. Where is the testing now? What like how are you testing the theory? Talk us a little bit about your work and, and how it happens technically. Right. So we have other clusters that we've discovered since we've become more involved with the study. We found clusters over in Lake Champlain, um, the Shelburne area, up in the St. Albans area, areas that have substantial algal blooms. We've been trying to look back in time and see if what you're exposed to over a period of 30 years or more might not play a role. I've had conjugal couples, people that live in the same house, come down with ALS at about the same time. And the two cases that I've seen were both on water bodies with cyanobacterial blooms. We've been looking at lung tissue because we think aerosol may be important. We're working on a study right now where we've taken prospectively lung tissue from 100 autopsy cases and are looking at brain tissue from those patients. These are not ALS patients. These are all, all comers that end up going for an autopsy. And we're trying to see if there's evidence of neurodegeneration in the brains and link that to the burden of cyanobacteria in the lungs of those patients. So we don't have all the data back yet, but it's work in progress. We have found BMAA in, in the lungs of patients who come in for bronchoscopy. So if they're being worked up for something, we'll get some of the fluid from their lungs. And we've, we've been able to find BMAA in the lung tissue. We've been able to find BMAA in aerosol collections. So we set up these little uh, pumps near water bodies and suck the air through a filter and then measure the amount of cyanobacteria and the amount of BMAA and other cyanotoxins in the filters. And we've been able to find it that way as well. So that's sort of where we've been going with this. But there is evidence that it's not just BMAA. There are other toxins that cyanobacteria produce that may well be neurotoxic as well. So we're interested in those. There are other toxins in the environment that may potentiate a disease like ALS. That would include some heavy metals like lead and methylmercury. There's some evidence that formaldehyde might be something bad. Diesel exhaust, all these things may be able to potentially trigger a disease like ALS. So not unlike something like lung cancer, ALS probably requires a genetic predisposition and then on top of that may require some environmental insults. So if you smoke, you won't be guaranteed to get lung cancer, but if you're genetically predisposed, you may end up getting lung cancer if you smoke long enough and hard enough. That's an interesting analogy, and uh, thank you for that background into the work that you're doing and kind of the history of the connection between the algal bacteria that you're looking into, the algal bloom toxins and potential for ALS. Dr. Stama, we're having this conversation in the middle of a global pandemic just had a profound impact on nearly every facet of all of our lives. But how has the pandemic and some of the quarantine rules and how we're responding to it, what impact has that had on your work? For our epidemiology studies, it hasn't had a huge impact because we can do most of that remotely. It has had a big impact on our clinical trials I have four clinical trials that I'm involved in, and the patients weren't able to come to clinic 
for several months. So that put a complete stop on that. I also haven't been able to see my ALS patients in person because it's really been a little bit risky for patients that already have, you know, bad medical conditions uh, to come to, to clinic if they don't have to. So I feel like I've abandoned them on some level. The other issue there is that I'm a little worried about future research funds. I think philanthropy in general has subsided because of the pandemic. And, you know, I think probably big funding agencies like NIH are going to redirect some of their funds to fight the COVID war. And I can't blame them for doing so, but I do worry about ALS funds under those circumstances. Yeah, there are, I mean, certainly are some long-term ramifications, as, as you mentioned, in the world of philanthropy and in the world of public health or healthcare research generally. You know, we've spoken to so many people on this program in recent weeks and months who talk about the need to persevere despite the pandemic, this idea that ALS isn't going to pause for the pandemic for COVID. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about where you get that sense of urgency, how we you know, inspire people to maintain vigilance in this fight and that this idea that we can't really push the pause button until COVID comes to an end. I think COVID will likely come to an end, certainly before ALS does. And at any one time, there's 30,000 odd ALS patients in this country who are all suffering along with their families. And there's another 5,000 every year that are diagnosed. So I think that there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of important clinical trials that still need to be done. This platform trial that's being done through Mass General Hospital is an example of tremendous philanthropy on the part of the Healy family donating $40 million to get that trial up and running. And, you know, in one's wildest dreams, it would seem unlikely that something like that would happen through NIH, where you know they give an institution that much money to set something up. And I think it demonstrates, although the economy is not thriving right now, in part because of the COVID issue, there's a lot of people hurting financially. There are still a lot of very, very wealthy people out there. And you know some of these very wealthy people are going to get ALS. It's gonna happen or their relatives are going to get sick with it. And, you know, I think it's a disease worth funding. I would also add that being able to do very good epidemiology requires data sets that are complete. And there was a ATSDR meeting the other day as part of the CDC, and we talked about having a reportable registry so that one could do better epidemiology studies. and Massachusetts is the only state in the country that has a reportable registry for ALS. And I think it would be wonderful if we had a reportable registry for the whole country. I've tried to get a reportable registry for ALS in New Hampshire and Vermont and have, have failed miserably at that as of yet. But I'm somewhat hopeful that if I can find some funding for it, that it might be a possible thing to do. I think that the finances of having a reportable registry is probably the major bottleneck 
but there are reportable registries for cancer, and there's reportable registries for infectious diseases, i.e. COVID. So I would love to see a reportable registry for ALS. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that platform trial. I saw news earlier this week that they have begun enrolling participants in that. So positive news and some forward momentum there. Doctor, before I let you go, where do you find hope? What, what gives you encouragement that while we may have a long way to go, that we are making progress? And from when you first joined this fight, we've actually come a long way since then. Where do you find that hope? Where do you look for it? Well, there's some very, very bright people who are studying this disease and, you know, also a fair amount of people studying the disease, both basic scientists, clinicians, epidemiologists, toxicologists. And I think that there's going to be some breaking point where there are going to be some common underlying factors, cellular factors that are going to respond to medications. There's a trial going on with the SOD1 mutation now where they actually go after the gene. That's a very interesting situation where they might be able to, you know, at least with a very small subcategory of ALS, turn off a toxic gene. There is a mutation called the C9-ORF mutation. And I was just reading some literature about that yesterday where Medication used for diabetes may be able to turn off the mutated C9-ORF gene when it starts to become too long. It turns off the effects of it anyway. So that's a fairly common gene seen in as many as 25 to 30% of familial ALS and about 7% of sporadic ALS. So there are all these interesting genes and perhaps mutations that are being discovered that might be something that we can target. And understanding what those environmental triggers are for a disease like ALS may provide one ways to mitigate the disease or to target where those toxins are going. So I'm, I'm optimistic that there'll be some very good therapies in the next 10 or 15 years. A hopeful note to conclude on. Dr. Stommel, I will let you go and just want to thank you again for your time and your insight that you were able to bring to our conversation today. Certainly. Thank you very much. Well, thank you again to Dr. Elijah Stummel, a neurologist up at Dartmouth University for taking some time to talk to us today about algae and environmental factors, possible connections to ALS. A really insightful conversation and hope one day to have him back on the show. Yes. Thank you to Dr. Stummel for the thoughtful discussion and Thanks to all of you for tuning into this week's show. I mention it each time, but we'd be thrilled if you subscribe to the show wherever you listen or on our website at connectingals.org. And feel free to hunt us down on Facebook and Twitter as well if you have questions or feedback for the show. Today's episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. We appreciate you listening, folks, and we will connect with you again soon.